Father, that's the cry of our hearts this morning. We want your light to shine upon us, and we're so grateful that by looking into your word, your light does shine. It emanates every time we open it and expose our hearts to it. We want your word to be a light unto our path because that's where we're finding the real kind of true wisdom that emanates from your character, which is the source of all truth, and we're thankful for that. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this community of faith where we sense your spirit's presence every time we exalt the name of Jesus Christ as we have done in these songs together. We thank you that we can sense there's something bigger than all of us. And as we focus our attention on that, I pray that we will let the cares of our world shrink as they should next to your greatness. As you reset our priorities and reset our compasses to true north, as we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Have you ever asked for something and you got an answer, but it wasn't exactly what you'd asked for? I think that happens quite often. certainly has happened to me. We're going to look today at a passage now that it's... Uh, Mark 2, the passage that I have used numerous times in the last 19 years as an illustration because it's such a great one. You probably know it by heart if you've been here any length of time at all. It's about that paralyzed man whose friend left, let him down through a hole in the roof. But we're going to look at this from a slightly different angle today about the fact that sometimes we may think we know what we want and we ask God for that. And yet God instead surprises us in a good way by giving us what we need rather than what we want. So whatever you might be dealing with in your own life, I'm praying that God's going to speak to your heart specifically through his spirit, even if you're asking him for something currently. I think it's no accident that we're arriving today at this passage. I see that happen all the time. We'll plan months in advance, and something will happen just at the same time when I'm preaching on a very specific passage. And I know that that's because God and his sovereignty and his omniscience knows what we need when we need it. So let me tell you about two times, just to get us into our headset around here. Not this headset, but the mindset. <laughs> but let me tell you about a couple of times when I asked God for something, and now that I've lived long enough to look back at the events that played out over time, what would happen if, this is a what if, this is just a big what if. Now this doesn't happen, I wish it did. I wish God would give us the answer along with the explanation for why he's going to do something different. But this is what would have been the case if he had given me what I know now. Okay, here, this is me, my request. Lord, this girl, this one that I'm starting to hang out with a little bit, she is really nice. Um, is it possible that she could be the one? I would like for her to be the one. Could you make it possible for this to be the one? And here's God's response if he's giving advance notice. He would say, no, but if you'll be patient for just two more years, I'm going to send you the one, and when you meet her, you'll understand. You will, I promise. The one I'm sending you is going to get it when it comes to the life I'm calling you and she to live in ministry together, and the one that you're dating right now that you like so well, she would not understand it. So if you could just be patient for two more years, 
Wouldn't it be nice if he answered that way? See, we have to live through those two years. I had to live through those two years until I saw the one. And, of course, you know her because she's the pastor's wife. Request number two, Lord, I would really like to move on and get my master's degree because I feel like I've got more education to go because I don't know enough about your word to rightly divide the word of truth and to unpack it the way I would like to. And quite frankly, I'd like to move as far away as I could from this pastor I'm working for right now because he's a pain. (laughs) And I mean, he micromanages me and he's always in my face about this or that. And I feel like he's heaping way too much on my shoulders in the job description. I'm not ready for this stuff yet. I'm just a kid. So, Lord, is it possible that you could move me away to seminary and while I'm at it, get me farther away from this pastor? Here's God's response. You know this pastor that you're talking about? Yeah, Lord, I know him. Oh, I know him. Well, that guy who doesn't get you, you might be surprised to know that if you can be patient for 10 years, You are going to go to seminary. You are going to move away from him temporarily. But in 10 years, I'm going to call that same man to take your place as the pastor of the church you plant in Arizona. Are you okay with that? Now, if he had said that, I would have said, no. No, you are not. Because I never would have thought that would have happened, but that's exactly how it played out. But see, I had to live through those 10 years going to seminary, starting the new church in Phoenix, all the kind of stuff that happened prior to God fulfilling something because God knew it was going to happen. It was no surprise to him, but man, it was a big surprise to me because I just wanted to flee these bad feelings that I had when I was in college and working for this guy. Turns out that that other pastor had to go through a few things in his own life, including a really bad motorcycle accident on the way to a funeral in California and uh, knocked out all of his teeth and he had to get implants and he was affected by his short-term memory for a while. He was a different man. I'm here to tell you, he was a different man post-recovery after that accident than he was when I knew him when I was in college. But God knew all that because God is sovereign and he's omniscient. Hindsight is a real luxury, isn't it? Things become so clear when you can look back on stuff as opposed to when you're in the midst of the mess trying to make sense of what you think your next step might be. It clarifies a lot of things. But fortunately, some of us who are ancient have lived long enough to look back and see different things to show why there are patterns in our life because God is showing us that he can show us the next step by shining his spotlight, which is why I love that song that the praise team did just now. Lord, let your, your light shine on us. And he'll do that, and he'll shine it just on the next step we're supposed to take. And if we'll just go that far and trust him, we don't have to see 10 years down the road or even two, but just go to the one that he's shining the light on, and we can trust him for that. Step one, here's a pattern that I recognize about myself looking back at some stuff. Step one, I get really anxious about something I can't solve. And I want to be able to solve it because I want to have control in my life. And when I feel like I can't solve it, I feel out of control. Step two, I ask God for what I want, thinking that I know what I want. Step three, he answers, but not necessarily in the way I expected. Step four, in time. This is over the time. Sometimes it's months, sometimes it's years, sometimes it's decades. I see that God's answer 
is far better than my request. Far better. And I'm learning that I can trust him in that, which is why now that we're in the midst of post-pandemic coming back out, emerging as a church, we have now become a hybrid church because we're doing live streaming and I think half at least of our congregation is watching and we're so glad you're a part of our community. Keep doing that. Things are very different. I never would have seen that one in January of 2020 if somebody had told me this is what's going to be happening right now. If I'd say, God, what do you want us to do next? Wouldn't we be shocked if he said, well, first I'm going to send a pandemic globally around the world and then this is going to happen and this, and we would probably have not been prepared for his answer. But because he's omniscient and he knew all this was coming, he's helping us understand that we can keep trusting him fully one step at a time and we're doing it. And I'm so proud of everybody for being as flexible as you've been. I showed up here this morning. There's all these different people doing the things that God has gifted you to do just to even make this happen today so that we can be a community of faith. And then we looked in the growth encounter at how everything we do to support the thing that we have elevated in our highest priority, that's an act of worship, which means that every one of you who are pouring your gifts into making this happen, that's a part of your act of worship as well. So you're worshiping as you set up stuff and as you push the right buttons which I could never do to make this go out the way it's going out all the things that you all do it's an act of worship God is still sovereign and he's still being worshiped and sometimes we're flexible and he's teaching us to be patient and to keep trusting him each step because we know that his answer is better than our request Uh, Clive Wellington one of my favorite wise guys said when God says no He is reserving a much better yes to take that no's place. And then think about this statement as well from a radio host and writer by the name of Nancy DeMoss. She says, God's will is what we would choose if we knew what God knows. I like that. If I knew what God knew back when I was asking certain things in my life, I probably would have shifted my prayer request a little bit. And I'm hoping that maybe if we all start seeing how we pray a little differently based on God's seeing the whole picture, maybe we'll be able to put some little parentheses at the end of our prayers and say, but God, even though I think I know what I want, ultimately, I want your will above all. So even if I don't get what I'm asking for specifically, please show me what your will is because as soon as I know what you know, that's what I want. In our Afghan resettlement ministry, which is a bigger project than I think this little congregation has ever tackled, we're all on the steering team kind of thinking, okay, God, what's next? Because it's big and there's a lot of unknowns. And in our Zoom meeting with the... uh, the team last Monday night, in fact, we were starting to become aware of the fact that there's a lot of variables involved in this. We want to be able to help this family that God's going to pair up with us so that we can show them God's love with skin on and so that maybe they can see Christians in a different light and hopefully, God willing, maybe they'll come to Christ someday. I mean, that's our purpose, right? But we don't know where they are. We don't know who's going to be paired up with us. We don't know what size house they're going to need. We don't even know which house we're finding yet, but we know that God has the one out there for them. And yet, one person at the end of all these we don't knows, we don't knows, we don't knows, I think it might have been, well, his initials are Mark Elwell, who said, 
Fortunately for us, there is someone who knows the answers to all these questions. And that's precisely my point for how I'm building up to this story in Mark chapter 2. Today we're going to look in on some people who are about to learn that God surprises us, and he surprises us by giving us what we need rather than what we think we want. So let's pray, and then we're going to dive into this passage together. Father, I continually feel like a feeble messenger who's trying to explain a symphony by whistling, to use that analogy that I used a couple of weeks ago. And and it feels like I, I will always fall short of the power of your word. And so I pray that I'll step back out of the way and that I'll just be the spokesperson so that your word is what is being accomplished here because your word is powerful. I mean, Jesus is the Logos. He is the word. So as we're looking into your word, we're looking at the words of God, the words of Jesus. And I want us to take them seriously, and I want you to enlighten them and to shine a light within our own hearts so that that word takes on new meaning for us and becomes real and personal and powerful, dynamic, so that it explodes out of us in the actions that you're giving us to take as we flesh out your word in the world around us today. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Here's the passage. Let's make our way through it, shall we? I'm reading from the NIV translation, if you're following along. Mark 2, 1 through 12. A few days later, meaning that we've just come through in the last four weeks, what comes just before that, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home because he was making his temporary home right there, probably in Simon Peter's house, we gather. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Verse 3, some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Gives us a clue right there. Some men came, four of those men carried them, which says to me there were more than four of these friends. No way they could get in, so they were carrying him on a mat. Verse 4, since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. And when Jesus saw their faith... He said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take up your mat, and go home. And he got up. And he took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. And this amazed everyone. And they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. And you'll notice just a bit of context, very briefly, that there is a shift in tone between chapter 1 and chapter 2. In chapter 1, Jesus is 
well received. Everything he says, people are hanging on every word and everything's great. There's no pushback. But all of a sudden, immediately after this one incident, tons of pushback. And we start to see the unsettled attitude of the religious leaders, the teachers of the law, starting immediately. And that's going to continue to ramp up and become one of the greatest sources of consternation in Mark's gospel, leading all the way up until Jesus' crucifixion. Remember the setting for the incident. Let's go back over that real briefly. He's teaching in a home. So many have gathered that there's no room. Hole in the roof. Man gets let down. Jesus speaks to the man. That's the setting for this whole thing. So there's some surprises here. There's a request, and then there's some surprises. What's the first surprise? Well, it's what Jesus says in verse 5. Jesus surprises everyone in the situation. The men who brought the man, the man who's in need of healing, the crowd, the onlookers, and those teachers of the law. Everybody was surprised. Why? Because what would we expect his first words to be if somebody's let down and we can see that he's paralyzed? Pick up your mat and walk, right? He doesn't do that. He looks at him. The first thing he says is, son, your sins are forgiven. The first thing out of his mouth is, son, your sins are forgiven. And he doesn't heal the man first. Interesting. Now, allow me to contextualize this. This is my holy imagination at work. Please forgive me if uh, I'm not trying to add any words, but I'm just saying they had a context for their culture there. Maybe they had some dialects. Maybe they had some things locally so that this is how people might be thinking or responding. I'm doing that by saying, let's say that these people were from the Midwest. And they were located at the Midwest portion of the Sea of Galilee, so we're not too far away from there. Not Midwest Galilee, because that was farther out, but the, the Sea of Galilee. So, we, you know, we're going to fudge that just a little bit. Now, it's not recorded that they said these things out loud, but I can imagine that if people from the Midwest were in this situation and the guys on the mat, they might be, after he says, son, your sins are forgiven, they might be going, oh, well, well, hmm, thank you. Well, that's so nice. That's just so nice there for you to say that. <laughs> it would be wonderful. It really would. It'd be wonderful to have a religious experience, don't you know? Uh, it really would. However, and I mean no disrespect here, but, um, well, it's just that sort of, I sort of thought maybe you'd be able to see pretty clearly that we have a much greater need here than a religious experience. So don't be offended by that, but... We know what our greatest need is. You see, that's the way we Midwesterners might have responded to that. I don't know if that Midwesterner did, but Jesus' response to this request, which is clearly that he thinks that their biggest need is for him to be healed there, is basically, no. No, you don't. You don't know what your greatest need is. That's why Jesus is the master teacher. He knows when to change things up and to change the order of events in such a way as to create a teachable moment. And man, this was a teachable moment. It's basically kind of like he's saying, you think that because you're paralyzed, you know what your greatest need is. It's mobility. And that if I can give you your mobility back, all of a sudden, all of your life's problems are just going to go away. And it'll be fine. Kind of like when he spoke to me and said, just because you're going to get into another state to go to seminary, all your problems are going to go away because you won't have this micromanaging pastor as in an authority over you. But no, that's not going to happen. 
you're going to still find the same kind of personality types no, no matter where you go. And he's saying to this guy, essentially, now I'm putting words in Jesus' mouth here. This is my interpretation of what I see happening through a much more concise way of Jesus doing it. He was so good at boiling things down into action, which is what Mark captures so well for us. He's a man of action and very few words. But it's like he's saying, I can guarantee you that in, let's say, less than six weeks, if I give you your legs back, if you can walk again, you're still going to find something that's really upsetting because life is upsetting. All of your problems are not going to go away simply because you've gotten this one need met. Interesting. So, in this case, Mark chapter 2, with the paralyzed man, Jesus communicates all of that but without a whole lot of words. It's almost like these days you're saying uh, on the Internet, they'll say, tell us this without telling us that. You know, that whole trend that's going on there. It's like, Jesus, tell us what our real need is without telling us what our real need is. And that's exactly what Mark is showing us through this particular miracle. He does, and he does so with this unexpected response. What I keep learning from God's unexpected responses to my requests is that nothing, no thing is more important than my right relationship with God. Nothing. Not my relationship to my boss, even if he's a pastor, not the girl that I hoped that I might marry one day. Nothing is more important than my right relationship with God. He's been showing me that. He continues to show us that because he demands our ultimate allegiance, and rightly so, because life is better if we give him the ultimate allegiance. The Christian view of God and his plan helps us see that God's ultimate plan is to redeem a material universe. So he's looking at a much bigger picture than we tend to look at. It's so easy for us to get mired down in all the day-to-day -day current circumstances when God is looking at something way down the road and he knows what's going to get us to where he wants because he wants the very best for his kids. And yet, and yet, and somebody might say, if they were a skeptic, they might say, well, are you telling us that God is a narcissist and that he demands all that stuff because it's, look at me and he's so great? So, no, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying he ultimately wants to give us the best for us, and the best for us is himself because he is perfect, and there's no other being that's perfect. That's not narcissism at all. That's giving us what we need. So anyway, Jesus did not ignore this man's physical need either, so we don't want to miss that. Yes, he took care of the first thing by saying this is the first thing you need. It's the most important thing is a right relationship, and you need to be forgiven. So he does that. But he still goes ahead and heals the man because he shows what his compassion is like as well. If somebody might say, you Christians, you're always talking about the gospel and people need to get saved when there's social justice out there that needs to happen. And I would say, yep, <laughs> I agree. I absolutely agree. And where did most of the hospitals come from? In the world today, they came from Christians. In fact, interesting word, hospitalia, the Latin, probably not pronouncing it right. Any idea about what that word originally meant? I didn't know, so I'm asking you, and that's unfair because I got to look it up. But it means an apartment or spare room that was given to help host strangers or guests and to take care of their physical needs. 
So in the parable of the Good Samaritan, when somebody dropped that guy off, he was probably in a hospitalia, somebody's spare room or in an inn someplace where he said, and with my own money, at my own expense, I am going to take care of his needs. And if I owe you any more when I come back, I'll give you some more. That's hospitalia. That's where all these hospitals started to, to come from. So we have hospitals in all these different countries around the world because Christians recognize that we need to minister to people's physical needs as well as their greatest need, which is eternal, their right relationship with God. Both and, not either or. We shouldn't rip one away at the expense of the other. We should be doing both. Because we understand what Christ came to do for us, we understand our greatest need. So, to sum up, my first point made by Jesus' first surprise response, many people back then but also today don't want to admit that our greatest need is forgiveness. Our culture would say, "Mm -mm, that's a sign of weakness. Don't say that. Don't admit that you might have done something wrong. And yet, there's something deep down inside of every person. There's that ache that we know there's a stain that can't be washed away. We need forgiveness. I think all of us know that at a gut level, way down deep. So what's Jesus' second big surprise here in this passage? It's what the man doesn't say. Now, we're having to look into this a little bit, especially surrounded by context from other verses in the Bible, but it's what this guy doesn't say. What might we expect if we're good evangelical conservative Baptist people with the word and to say, okay, but first, if you're going to get forgiven, you need to say something. What is that? What's the magic word? Say, oh, repentance. Oh, yes, right. I repent. And yet we don't see that. Isn't that unusual? Very strange that Jesus, and there, it doesn't happen anywhere else in Scripture, that Jesus just comes right out and blurts it out and says, son, your sins are forgiven. What is up with that? Now, would it be that Mark is coming up with something that's contradicting all the rest of the places in Scripture where we can see that repentance is necessary so that grace can be poured out because we have to make a personal uh, recognition that we are sinners before we can have those sins forgiven? No, that's not what the Scripture is like. Mark is not contradicting anybody. Well, where's a clue? There's a clue in verse 8. And I find this remarkable and I find it encouraging for all of us who have been turned off by legalism that would say, no, you've got to do this and this and this in a checklist, checklist Christianity. And this is in pendulum swing away from the checklist Christians. Uh, they weren't Christians then. They were actually Jews. But the teachers of the law, those were the people that, man, you had to do everything right or you would be unclean. Look at what it says in verse 8, just the first part of verse 8. Immediately, Jesus knew where? in his spirit, that this was what they, meaning the teachers of the law, were thinking. But that's a clue. Because if he knew what the teachers of the law were thinking in their hearts, even though they had not expressed it out loud, is it not possible that Jesus also knew exactly what that man on the mat was thinking, even if it was inarticulately expressed? Even if he didn't have all the right these and thous to put it into the right statement, or he didn't have the card with the sinner's prayer on it that he could read, and there was no aisle that he could walk up, and he was paralyzed, so he couldn't have walked up anyway. There are so many things that we tend to think of that we have to do 
before we can be right in God's eyes. And I think Jesus knew exactly this. This man was aching for what he really needed, and so he met his real need based on what he knew was there. Now, that makes me feel encouraged for a number of reasons. First, there's no contradiction in Scripture. We can always trust that. But second, I told you a couple of years ago, maybe more, about an uncle of mine that I'd been praying for because he had had a hard time growing up as a cowboy in New Mexico, a hard time trying to believe in a God that you couldn't see. Some of that just didn't make sense to him. And at a family reunion, man, this is probably back in 2010, I'm guessing, because my mom was still alive. I flew out to Phoenix, drove her out to New Mexico so she could be there with that reunion and one of my aunts said would you like to preach if we'll gather the family together on a Sunday and you can have a worship service I said I'd be happy to do that she's asking does a pastor want to have an opportunity to share the gospel (laughs) yes thank you so they did and said we're not going to make it mandatory and I said that's great whoever shows up shows up I said that's fine if there's a dozen that's terrific everybody showed up I mean the whole clan (laughs) It was amazing. We had this community center, and it was just filled with people. It was a beautiful experience. And I shared several of the reasons that I personally had chosen to believe in God and then had a chance to understand why, because he loved us so much that he sent his only son to die in my place to pay the penalty I could never pay. And that's why I've chosen to trust in this God. And my uncle, the one who's not very expressive, he didn't really have all the right words to say, never really been to church to speak of, But he had tears in his eyes when I finished, and I walked right between his table and another table back to my seat, and he'd never done this before to me in my life. He grabbed my hand, that calloused cowboy hand, and held onto it, and with tears in his eyes, he just looked at me and nodded his head. And I thought, something powerful just happened in this guy's heart. And I prayed. I got back to my table, and I was praying, oh, God, I pray that what I just saw was the only outward evidence we may ever get, but that somehow he opened his heart to you. I don't know. Only God knows for sure. But I'm so grateful that even though man tends to look at the outward experiences, those outward evidences, God looks at the heart. And Mark, I think, wanted us to see that early in his gospel. I find that very encouraging. It's also why I continue to tell people if I have more than one opportunity to share the gospel with them. You may not accept it yet, but please hang on to this. Hang on to this truth that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you get to a point in your life when you recognize it, even if you can't speak it, think it, but call out to God. He'll hear you. Because I want them to have that in the back of their mind always so that they, if they have a dying breath, they can still reach out to the God who loves them and wants them to take that step of faith. What's the third unexpected response in Mark's uh, account of this guy being let down? Jesus proves his authority to forgive sin. He says so in verse 9, which is easier? Again, great teachable moment, and I'm sure that these guys probably wrestled with it. They may have had a good debate for a couple of hours after they left that incident, these teachers of the law. But he said, which is easier? To say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. Or to say, pick up your mat and walk. Now, at face value, I look at that, and I'm thinking, well, it's awfully easy to just say your sins are forgiven. Who's going to know if it really happened or not? And maybe that was the case. 
I'm sure they had some theological depth to how they discussed that because it's really not that easy. And that's kind of the point, too. There's a, a hidden depth to this. It's not easy at all to say your sins are forgiven because there's only one person who can forgive. And that was part of where they're, that's why they got so angry. But he says, so that you'll know that I have authority, so that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. And he turns to the man and he heals him. He says, pick up your mat and go home. And the guy does so. So all of a sudden, here's this stuff that's equated with sin because in these legalists' minds, they thought that the outward appearance of a paralyzed man equated sin. This man had to have sinned or he would not be in this physical state. That's their mindset. And yet Jesus conquers both the physical and shows them that he has the authority to conquer the spiritual. All in one fell swoop and just with a few concise words. He had intentionally reversed the order of expected events in this real-life scenario. And on purpose, he forgave the man's sins before he healed him. And that created a teachable moment that we can see just a few verses later in Mark 2. Uh, they became very, very upset about that. Now, what was the response to this surprise? Verse 12. Well, the guy got up. He took up his mat and walked. And he's walking out in front of everybody in full view of all these folks, including the teachers of the law. And, interesting, this amazed, didn't say everyone except the teachers of the law. It said everyone. I had to ponder that for a minute because I thought, wait a minute, weren't they upset? Yeah, but it may have been that they were amazed and their jaws dropped, and yet they had to go and have a hallway conversation or to walk on their way home and talk about it and then convince themselves, yeah. That was amazing, but he can't be God, so that must have been Beelzebub because you know later they says, oh, trying to accuse him of having the power of Satan, which is why that, and Jesus says, no, a house divided can't, can't stand. So these guys at that moment apparently were pretty amazed. And yet we find out just a few verses later that they're starting to look for ways to, we've got to get him out of here. This is not going to be healthy. So sure enough, the crowd was amazed. The onlookers were amazed. I can imagine that the four guys that let him down on the mat were amazed. And I hope that they stayed around and fixed the roof. And the man who was paralyzed previous to that moment had to have been amazed. I imagine he's probably dancing a jig and going home and going, Whoa, look at this. I can't believe it. Yes, it's me. I was the guy that, yes, this is me. What a testimony. So everyone was amazed. But why were the religious leaders so angry? And why were they angered later as we start looking through the rest of this passage? Well, for one thing, they knew that you can only forgive sins that are committed against you. This is a theological point. I'm going to illustrate that. I think that you're going to understand better what I meant. Let me explain. Let's say that my lovely wife, Joy, and I are with someone in the room. Let's call him George. I don't think we have any Georges in the room, so I don't want to pick on anybody specifically. But let's say there's a George who comes up, and he says something that really offends me. Okay, well, last name, don't, that doesn't count, Bill. <laughs> but, uh, but this George, first name, says something, and so I get angry, and I don't act in a very Christ-like fashion, and I punch him in the nose. Boom. And he's standing there with his nose bleeding, grabs a handkerchief. He's holding on to this bloody handkerchief and his nose and going, well, that's terrible. And if Joy looks to me and says, you know, he was really rude 
And so, you know, it's okay, honey. I forgive you. What's George going to think? George, who's holding his broken nose, is going to be going, you can't do that. Only I can forgive because the offense was against me. These teachers of the law knew that for Jesus to forgive sin means that all sin was against him. All sin is against God because only God can forgive sins. This is wrapped into their concept of why they were thinking that in their hearts. Only God can forgive sin because all sins of sinners in the world is an offense against God. So that threw them into some huge theological debate and some perplexity. They were so confused, they didn't know what to do, and they became angry because they thought, well, we have to eliminate this threat because this is just not right. The religious leaders, interestingly enough, were correct in what they said, which means that you can be theologically correct and still far from God. You can intellectually know a truth and not make that, is it 13 inches or so, move from the head to the heart? And they clearly had not made that move from the head to the heart because they were really upset about it. They were correct when they said, only God can forgive sins. Yes. <laughs> yes. That is a theological truth, and you got that right. They just didn't understand that Jesus, who is forgiving that sin, is co-equal with God. He is God the Son. That's why they were so upset. So what's our greatest need? We might think we know what our greatest need is depending on what our current circumstance might dictate in our lives. But what we learn in Mark 2 is that what we need most above everything else is a right, right relationship with God, and the only way to do that is forgiveness. That's what Jesus came to do. It's all about forgiveness. And we all know that intuitively. I think everybody has that deep-down knowledge of it. Even people who are trying to push that away and to say, no, I need empirical evidence. I think everybody knows we have that deep need. And fortunately, this is what I learned, even if we're stumbling over our words and we can't adequately articulate what our need is, if we just say, God, help me, he knows our heart. And if we'll call out to him, he'll always answer, always. Because that's what kind of a compassionate God he is. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it's amazing to me when I continue to see the brilliance of Jesus' teaching and I see his power demonstrated in such a way that all the miracles are also teaching and they validate his authority. It's all wrapped into one thing. And Mark did a masterful job of capturing this event for us so that we can understand the complexity made simple and it can become brought right down to our level to understand it so that we understand we can't work our way to heaven like the teachers of the law thought. We have to open ourselves up to the only one who can forgive, and that is you. And so we do that. We open ourselves up to you saying, God, thank you for your salvation given only through Jesus Christ. May we live our lives in such a way that we're continuing to trust you for the answers to our prayers, and may we become more mature in our faith so that we can put parentheses at the end of our prayers and say, but most of all, God, answer in your way, in your time. Because we may think we know what we want, but we know that your answers are always better. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.